Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. One of my goals over the last year has been to help you understand how Genesis is a book full of stories that really speak to the human condition. Though on the surface, I'm sure many of you have wondered, how are these stories having any relevance to my life? My hope is is that you walked away from many of my sermons feeling as though, yeah, this does have something to say to me and the walk that I'm going through in my life. One of the reasons why I want to do this sermon series so much is because I believe these stories are wonderful vehicles to help us discuss issues that we all face as human beings. And this is particularly true of the scripture that we read for today. Now, we need to go back and do a little bit of recap. I've been doing a lot of recapping lately, so I apologize for that. But we're just going to recap characters today. We're going to have a little quiz, see how well you all do in terms of the characters I've been talking about every single week. So, we've been talking about a character whose name is Jacob. Jacob has two wives. They're sisters. What are their names? Does anybody know? Wow, can't... What? No. <laughs> Leah and Rachel. Leah and Rachel. Okay, now, how many children has Leah given to Jacob? How many, does anybody know? 27? 30? Do I hear 40? <laughs> She's given him six children, five sons and one daughter. Now, but prior to this text that we read today, how many children has Rachel born for Jacob? One. one. All right. And today, in the text we read, she has her second child. Now, generally speaking, at this point in history... The woman who bears more children is considered to be the better wife. But that's actually not the case in this particular instance. In this instance, Jacob loves Rachel, the one who has given him less children, more than he loves Leah. If you want to understand why that's the case, you need to go back and watch my other sermons because we're not talking about that today. But for now, what you need to know is that Rachel is the most beloved wife of Jacob. And she's pregnant, as we said, with her second child, a son. And the scripture tells us that when she goes to give birth, that she has a hard labor. This is alluding to the fact that she has to deal with some complications. I'm sure you're not unaware that complications during labor were not entirely infrequent at this point in history. Hands down, the most dangerous thing a woman would undergo during her lifetime prior to modern medicine was giving birth. And prior to modern medicine, what we can see is that one out of every five women would die during childbirth. And in some societies, that number could reach as high as 40%, just depending on the circumstances. Usually there's four primary causes for complications that women undergo during labor. Hemorrhage, infection, eclampsia, which is essentially high blood pressure that leads to seizures, and finally, obstructed labor. Now today we have methods for treating and preventing all of these complications. 
But in truth, you should know that only about 15% of pregnancies require any kind of medical intervention. We do it a lot more today than we should because doctors are so scared of getting sued, so they try to make sure that everything goes perfect. But at the time this story was written, if you did undergo a complication during labor, there's a very high likelihood that you would not survive. And unfortunately for Rachel, this is the case. When she goes into labor, she gives birth to her son, and she ends up passing away. She dies, and her son Benjamin lives. Life and death. These are two of the most important words in our English vocabulary. And yet I would contend that many of us don't really know what these words mean. Now, we all have the basic scientific definition of life and death down, right? Where life is when an organism exhibits certain phenomena like metabolism, growth, reproduction, and adaptation to environment. And death is when all those phenomena cease to occur. Now, we can wrap our minds around that, right? You think you can get that? It's like a light switch. You're either on or you're off. But you all know that life and death are far more complicated than those scientific definitions because you're more than a light switch. You want your time on this earth to mean something. You don't want your life to be like that of a bacteria, a tick, an ant, a deer, a bird. I mean, you want your life to be different from that. Sure, those organisms have a beginning and ending point, just like you, but those organisms come and go all the time, and nobody seems to notice. You want people to notice that you're here, and you want people to care when you're gone. And so one of the most important questions that we ask ourselves as human beings is how do I make that happen? How do I make my life mean something? Well, you all know that everybody has a different opinion as to what makes life meaningful. What's meaningful for me may not be meaningful for you. And furthermore, our age plays a big role in what makes life worthwhile. A 20-year-old in college is going to have a very different perspective on what makes life meaningful than someone in their 50s. But I think what we can all agree on is that our meaning is primarily derived from what we do. It's how we spend the hours of our day that gives us the greatest sense of meaning in our lives. Now, the reason why we tend to look at life through this particular lens is because there's a limited number of hours in a human life. Those hours begin ticking away from the time you are born. The average human being has about 657,000 hours at their disposal. Now, that 650,000 hours might sound like a lot, but the truth is that humans tend to use their time in a lot of the same ways because we are very routinized creatures. So, for instance, in America, the average human being will spend about 220,000 hours of their life sleeping, 100,000 hours of their life working, 64,000 hours of their life watching television or some other form of media, 40,000 hours eating, drinking, and preparing food, 
38,000 hours shopping and doing other household chores. 26,000 hours commuting from one place to another. 17,000 hours in school and studying for tests. 16,000 hours grooming and cleaning ourselves in the bathroom. A lot of time, right? 14,000 hours caring for our family and friends. And if you happen to be religious, 4,000 hours worshiping God. Not a whole lot on the end of worshiping God when you really look at it, right? Now that leaves you, on average, with about 123,000 hours to do whatever you want. And most sociologists will tell you that what you do with that 123,000 hours makes the difference between a life that is meaningful and a life that is wasted. For you see, when the majority of your life is taken up by other tasks, tasks that everyone has to perform, that 123,000 hours represents something quite unique. That is the time where you are no longer tethered to the responsibilities of your day-to-day life. You can do whatever you want. Now, interestingly, even if you do all these other tasks extremely well, you will come to find that if you misuse that 123,000 hours in a way that you do not feel is meaningful, then you'll get to the end of your life and feel as though your life has been wasted. Likewise, if you really make good use of those 123,000 hours in a way that you feel is meaningful, then when you get to the end of your life, you're going to feel as though your life has been worthwhile. Now, you notice I use that word feel a lot, right? Because there's no universal measurement to determine what makes a life meaningful or meaningless. In the end, it's all about how you feel about what you've done. And in a church like ours, a church where we tend to have a decent education and we're fairly successful— we use a good portion of that 123,000 hours for our careers. Many of us in here work far more than eight hours per day. And as a result, our careers, our jobs, tend to be the central focus of our lives. And so if your career, if your job is not meaningful or very fulfilling, then you're going to feel as though your life lacks purpose. Therefore, our careers tend to drive our understanding of meaning in our lives. The problem is that many of us work jobs that are not very meaningful and fulfilling. Many of us have a skill set, and that skill set is what we use to pay the bills. Now, generally speaking... That's true. Now, there's some of us who are very lucky, and we do work jobs that are very meaningful and fulfilling. But what I have found is that a lot of people work jobs, and what they do is they perform this mental gymnastics in their mind to convince themselves why this particular job is so very important to society. Because if we're going to be wasting all this time on our job, if we're going to be using it for that purpose, then we want it to mean something. And I think this is a big reason 
why people in America tend to have this very deep-seated feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness in their lives. Because in spite of all those mental gymnastics, we know deep down inside that many of us are wasting away the hours of our day on things that in the long run do not really matter. Let me use my job as an example, because my job is actually a perfect example of what I was just talking about. Now, as a pastor... My job has a lot of built-in potential for meaning and fulfillment. I can be with people in some of the happiest moments of their lives, during a marriage or a birth or a baptism, and some of the most challenging moments in their lives when people go through an illness, a death, or divorce. But being a pastor has a way of sucking the life out of you. And I mean that very truthfully because the average amount of time that a pastor in the Presbyterian church stays in their pastoring job, not just moving from one job to the next, but as a total career, is five years. Five years is how long the average person will spend before they say, I'm done, see you later. Now, that's because this job is very taxing, very challenging, very difficult. For me personally, I'm usually here at the office late into the evening, three nights a week for meetings and other functions. And on top of that, because I like to memorize my sermons, that takes extra time to do that. And so that takes up time during the week and time on the weekends to make sure I really know what I'm saying before I get up here. Now, I'm not up here to complain about my job, because you all come away and say, well, Alex really hates what he's doing. (laughs) That's not true. I really do love what I do. But it's a balancing act, and you all know this, because it's a balancing act in your life, too where you're asking, is the time that I'm spending doing this away from my family really worth it in the long run? One of the big questions I'm always asking myself is, if I were to die tomorrow, would I regret not having spent more time with my wife and children? Isn't it interesting how death has a way of focusing us on what's important in life? You can just be going through your life, doing what you've always done, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone who you really care about passes away. Their death jolts us out of this routinized trance to which we've become familiar, and we begin to reflect on how we've been using the hours of our lives. One of the most pervasive questions that we ask during an event like this is, why didn't I spend more time with the people who I love? And generally speaking, when this happens, it can cause us to reflect on whether or not we want to change those patterns, whether we want to live our life differently. In fact, if you've ever met somebody who got hit really hard by something like this, they will usually say, that's the moment that I started living my life because I realized that I wasn't doing it up to that point. I find it to be very paradoxical that death is often the key to life. Death is, by definition, when all physical functions cease to exist. And yet it is through death that life becomes possible. And this brings us back to the death of Rachel. Now, as we talked about, Rachel... She's going into labor. She gives birth to her son, and afterwards she dies. And if you think about it, in this one moment, 
where Rachel gives birth to new life and then passes away herself. In this one moment, life and death are held together in this perfect unity of joy and tragedy. Jacob loses his most beloved wife, but gains his most beloved son. Now, on the surface, this story might seem to be very simple. It's just about a woman who's giving birth, and she ends up dying in the process. But I think this is one of the most important stories in the Bible because it allows us to understand the motif of what the Bible thinks life is all about, which is joy and tragedy. Now, we've just spent a whole lot of time talking about how, for most of us, our meaning in life is derived from what we do, how we spend the hours of our day. But let me tell you, I disagree with that. I don't think life is so much about what you do, but about how you live in the moment while you do it. So, for instance, let's say I want to go out and spend the day with my family, with my wife and my sons. I think we'd all agree that's a good idea, right? Good use of my time. But if while I'm out with my family, I'm not present with them, I'm thinking about other things, the job, right? I'm thinking about other things going on in my life. Then I'm not present with them, and that time ends up being wasted. Because even though I'm doing a good thing with my time, not being present makes it far less meaningful. Whereas, if I'm present with them, if I'm focused on what's happening here and now, then all of a sudden, that moment has a lot more meaning to me. And the truth is, this can happen with anything in your life. You can be cooking, cleaning, driving to work. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters how present you are while you do it. And if you've ever taken the time to do this, if you've ever tried to be very present in the moment, Something that you have probably realized is that every second of life is filled with joy and tragedy. It is filled with life being lived and death slowly taking that life away. It is like trying to grab sand in your hand and feeling it slip through your fingers. Have you ever done that at the beach where you pick it up and you can feel that? You know the sand is there, but you can't quite hold on to it. If you ever have trouble... If you're having trouble understanding what I'm talking about, if you're like, hmm, not really getting it, you need to understand that this concept is what our entire faith is built around. Every week you come into this sanctuary and you see this massive cross bolted to the wall. Now, for Christians, the cross is a symbol of both death and life. It is a symbol of death in the sense that the cross was utilized as an execution machine. It's kind of like having an electric chair sitting up there. That's what that is. And it was used by the Roman government as one of the most excruciating ways to put a person to death. Likewise, it is a symbol for us of life because when Jesus was crucified after he was executed, we believe that he came back to life and that his life brings us life. And so therefore, the cross is a symbol of both joy and tragedy. Because it is through Jesus' death that we find life. Now, interestingly enough, I have found that when people try to do this, I've tried to do it, there are times when I'm really focused on being in the moment, that it's really hard. Have you ever tried to do it? It is super challenging to live in the moment all the time. 
We're not very good at it, most of us. And the reason for that is because it's hard to look at the joy and tragedy going on in front of our eyes. Most of life is far too painful and far too exhilarating for us to deal with in the extremes. And so we tend to try to zone it out, to kind of hit something in the middle. And by doing this, what we essentially come up with is we are elsewhere. We're not present. We're thinking about our jobs. We're watching television. We're being entertained. Also, we don't have to focus on what's happening right in front of us. And then one day, we wake up and look in the mirror, and we think to ourselves, my God, how old I am. What happened? It's like I blinked, and my whole life flashed before my eyes. If you are unwilling to embrace the joy and tragedy of every moment, then your life will pass you by. Ask yourself a question. What do I want my life to mean? If I were to die tomorrow, would I feel as though I had utilized the life that had been given to me? Or would I regret that I had not lived more in the moment? And just in case you're wondering, there is 21 minutes and 38 seconds worth of sand in that hourglass. That's 21 minutes and 38 seconds you'll never get back. And if, while I was preaching, you were focusing on that or thinking of other things, well, you weren't living in the moment, now were you? You were off elsewhere thinking about other things, and you know what? That's okay. But ask yourself a question. Is that the way you want to live the rest of your life? Staring at the hourglass while the sand runs out? As you leave here today, my prayer for you is that you might not let life pass you by, that you might live in the moment and find meaning in the reality that you are more than an on and off switch. You are more than what you do for a living. You are more than the sand in an hourglass. You are God's perfect creation, designed to experience the joy and tragedy of every moment. So may God give you the strength to embrace that joy and tragedy that is sitting directly in front of your eyes. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.